Assalamu alaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuhu. This is Abdul Nasser Jengda, and you're listening to the Qalam Podcast. The Qalam Podcast has become an important part of people's lives all around the world. There are millions of people benefiting from the podcast every single day. Thousands of hours of content, dozens of different series from all the different teachers and scholars here at Qalam. All of this is delivered to the community free of charge. We are excited and actively working to grow and increase our efforts to deliver more and more benefit to the community. We ask you to support our efforts and become part of the Qalam family. Please go to qalamfamily.com and sign up to contribute to this Sadaqa Jariya on a monthly basis. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala accept from all of us Jazakumullahu khairan wassalamu alaykum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuhu. We begin today's class with chapter number 13. The author teaches us another method Rasulullah used when teaching the companions. Before they would even ask the question, Rasulullah would pose the question for them. This was more common in a situation where the question was one that the Sahaba would feel that it was difficult for them to ask. The nature of the question was a little complicated. Yet Rasulullah could see that the question existed. So before they even asked their question, or someone had to step out of their comfort zone to ask something that they felt uncomfortable asking about, it was common for the Prophet to get there first and to reach. To, to be there available for them asking that question on their behalf and then providing the answer as well. Before we start today's class though, before we start reading the narrations, one thing that I wanted to say is that um, for every chapter the author does a phenomenal job at providing multiple examples from the ahadith. In uh, interest of covering more ground, rather than reading through all the narrations, we'll read through one or two narrations of each chapter. And then the chapter the narrations that remain, you can read them yourself, inshallah. They continue to deliver the same point that has already been made in the earlier narrations. Bismillah, go ahead. Bismillah, alhamdulillah, wa salatu wa salam, ala rasulillah, qalim wa alaykumullah, chapter number 13. To begin teaching in the absence of any student's request. Many a time, Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam used to begin teaching his sahaba without being asked by them about anything. This was more so with regard to important matters which all people are not aware of until questioned about them. Rasulullah would thus address the doubts of his Sahaba before these developed in their minds resulting in evil consequences. Bukhari Muslim narrated on the authority of Abu Sayyid who said, Rasulullah said, Shaitan comes to one, one of you and asks, who created such and such thing? He continues posing this question until he asks, 
who created your sustainer? When a person reaches that stage, he should seek refuge in Allah and refrain from such thoughts. Well, we won't read the commentary on this. I'll explain some uh, important points. Shaykh Abdul Fattah Abdul Ghuda under this narration has some beautiful points for students of knowledge to take into consideration um, arguments for the existence of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in Tawheed. The reality is that it takes more belief to not believe in a God than it takes to believe in one. If you go through the philosophical, philosophical arguments and you look at this from a perspective of probability, purely math, that the probability that there isn't a God and everything worked out so perfectly from an atheistic perspective, from a mathematical perspective, just doesn't add up. It doesn't add up. <coughs> this happening the way it's happening, for everything to be so perfect, for human beings to be where they are today, just our existence, for us, for human beings in all corners of the world, regardless of where they were, what language they spoke after the continents divided, for them all to come to a conclusion that there is a God. Now within them, unfortunately, there were those who faced deviances and therefore they fell into the trap of shit, which is an easy trap for human beings to fall into, unfortunately. But there is a concept, even in these shitty religions, in these polytheistic faiths, you will find that they always believe in one supreme God who is dominant over all other gods. There is a concept of one God, but then they create these helpers who help their one God, who help their great God. The, this, this, this thought that this is just by coincidence, that people in different corners of the world, in different jungles and, and deserts and, and, and far away or in the center of society, they all came up with the same conclusion. And yet it's by chance and probability is so far-fetched. Therefore, the truth is that it takes more faith to not believe in God than it takes to believe in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Our argument is simple, that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala huwa al-awwal, wal-akhiru, wal-bahiru, wal-bahiru. That before any matter existed, existed Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala outside of the realm of time and space. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala created with his kun, and thereafter the world came into existence, and all matter comes into existence, and everything that we see in our, in our universe comes into existence. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is the ultimate creator. He is the first, he is the last. The apparent and the subtle. And he has knowledge of all. Yes. Now, um, the ulama do say one thing that <coughs> when we look at this riwayah of Rasulullah rather than engaging in a philosophical argument, he gives a spiritual solution, teaching us that sometimes there are some questions that may seem very intellectual and they may seem that they are a result of a logical process. But nine out of ten times, these questions, specifically these imani questions, are wasabis of shaitan. So rather than misplacing our attention and focusing on giving an intellectual argument to this question, a philosophical, complicated, sophisticated argument to this question, 
Rasulullah gives us a spiritual one. As for the question that does God exist, how can we prove the existence of God? The Quran answers this thoroughly. Not in one place, but every page. Every page of the Quran is a dalil on the existence of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And every ayah Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala leads us to a thought that once again reminds us of the wujud and the existence of our creator and our master, Allah Yes, go ahead. So when a person comes to these questions where you're now questioning matters of the unseen, it's best to first take a spiritual precaution and ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to protect you from the waswasa of shaitan. To ask you to protect you from the waswasa of shaitan. Asking questions is a good thing. It's a healthy thing. If you have a question in your heart, don't just treat it as a waswasa and then never have an answer. Start off by asking Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to protect you from the waswasa of shaitan. Go to people of knowledge and ask them to guide you. The main thing when you're dealing with questions about Iman is to let the question originate from yourself. Don't rely on other people's questions and other people's skepticism. You can go online, go to, um, you know, uh, Reddit, and you'll find all sorts of garbage lying there. You don't need to go there and borrow their wasawis and their doubts about Shaitan and then from Shaitan and bury them into your heart. It's a very dirty, filthy place to be. It's like taking filth, you know, from a dirty place and rubbing it all over your body and saying, well, let's see if we can clean this. That's an inappropriate thing to do. Now, naturally, if filth does end up on you and you're trying to figure out how to clean this, there's a process to it. As Muslims, we take a multi-faceted approach to dealing with iman questions. Um, there is one part of it which is spiritual, like Rasulullah said, that you seek protection from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and then stop yourself. Put the brakes on it. Otherwise your mind will spiral. So you have to hit the brakes. Now, in another place we see Rasulullah teaching us a principled approach to being confused. That when you face a situation that there is a question that's making its way around your mind and it's circling you, it's circling you, that you go to people who are capable of answering your questions. Come answering your questions. Be humble and understand that the process of getting your questions answered is a journey. You know, a lot of things that you'll see online that people will say, I asked so and so a question and they didn't have an answer, therefore the answer doesn't exist. This isn't appropriate and it's not right. You could ask someone a question and get it wrong. Is that true or false? You can ask someone, how do you make coffee? And they'll give you some solution. And their portions are off. And then you ask another person, and it's still off. And then you ask the third person, it's still off. And so finally, you find someone who teaches you, this is how you make coffee. This is how you do your brisket. This is how you cook. This is how you clean. You, you have to stick and stay committed. Right? So when you go to people who do have knowledge, and you sit with them, a second lesson, or a second step of being humble, is not entering into the conversation thinking that you're going to debate and fight. Just listen. And there are times where someone will present an argument to you that in that moment won't make sense. But if you sit on it, and if you think about it, with time, it'll open up. 
There are many examples of this that we find in the hadith and also in our own lives that someone gives you an answer. At that moment, you think the answer is irrational, doesn't make any sense. But the more you sit on it, the more you sit on it, it opens up. One of my teachers, Shaykh Yusuf, he, he once said something to me when I was young. And at that, at that point, when he said the statement to me, I thought he was being overly simplistic to the very complicated world that we live in. I was a young person. I was reading the news and going to college and you know, reading all sorts of academic works by Muslims and non-Muslims. And he was talking about solutions to the problems of the world. We were having this conversation. And he proposed that most of the problems of the world could be solved by dhikr of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, being in the remembrance of Allah. I didn't say anything, but in my mind, I was thinking that this is too simplistic. That can't be the solution. I mean, there are bigger problems that we have. How do we solve them through dhikr? As time passed, and today I sit in front of you almost 15, 20 years later, I concur with him that at, at, its, at its root, at its essence, at its essence, if a person were to really, in the most meaningful way, connect themselves to the dhikr of Allah, Azawajal, most of the problems that we have in our life, in our communities, in our societies would be ironed out. It's such a deep uh, you know, principle response that it's a dhikr of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that solves the problems of the world, that sorts out the hearts. Through the dhikr of Allah, a person's heart is healed. Once a human being's heart is healed, now when they come to the world, they engage with it in a different way. You know, criminal activity decreases, people's consciousness and awareness increases. Their productivity increases because now they're aware that they have to face Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. While being productive members of society, they begin to help one another, assist one another. Zulm goes out the window because they're familiar and they understand that they are accountable to Allah, the one who's dhikr they're doing every day. As justice increases, people's compassion increases, their crimes against one another decrease, overall the world turns into a beautiful place. And this is why at the time of Rasulullah you see that they had a flourishing society without a without a um, without the presence of, of a system that was constantly monitoring monitoring people and without a full-blown police force and, a, and, a, and an army that was you know pointing their guns at people making sure everyone stays in line. They didn't have an extensive prison system. Rasulullah was able to accomplish this by sorting out the most fundamental part of society, the heart of the human being. Focus on that. Everything else will fall into place. If they're doing boom on one another in the marketplace, if they're oppressing one another in the marketplace, and they have taqwa and love for Allah, all you need to do is tell them Allah won't be happy with you. It's gone. The riba comes to an end. But if the heart isn't, isn't directed in the right way, if the heart isn't connected to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, you now have to appeal to the mind of the human being, which is good, by the way, but it's such a flip-flop process because for every philosophy you create, there's a counter-philosophy that comes into existence. Morality then becomes subjective. Subjective morality now has parameters that where does it start, where does it end, who does it apply to, who does it not apply to, who does compassion apply to, who does compassion not apply to. 
How do we understand what compassion is? And you find a broken fragmented society. So Shaykh Yusuf actually said that the solution of the world lied in dhikr of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. What I thought were just, you know, uh, an over an overestimated statement that was way outside of its scope. The truth is that it wasn't. So when you're going to engage with someone of knowledge, you have to humble yourself and understand that when you're given an answer, reflect over it, think about it, and ultimately ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala for guidance. When you go through the process of asking a question, in particular about your iman, on the other end, when you come out, you'll be strong and confident. And that confidence is what we need for people to stand on the world stage and talk about the deen and represent the deen. When I was young, in my early teenage years, like I think every person, I had some questions about Iman as well. This random says of shaitan. There was a colleague of mine who studied in Madrasa with me. At that point, he was in his graduating year. He lived in a nearby town called Bolton. Sheikh Nisa Ahmed. Now he's a sheikh. Those days we were students together. I recall going to him and telling him that, man, I have questions about the deen. He was a very humble, soft-spoken person, very intelligent though, very good with words. He would sit there and engage with me and answer my questions, and we'd sit for long hours. I was unfortunately very arrogant, and I loved arguing, still very arrogant, and still love arguing. He was the exact opposite, very mellow, calm person, would listen to me in my, in my nonsense. One day he said to me, he said, Hussein, we can continue like this forever. Clearly, you love arguing. But before we get anywhere with this, you need some time to improve as a person. I accepted that for him because he was a good person. He was a good human being. He was genuinely a good person. He was older than me. He said, you need some time to improve as a person. Otherwise, these conversations are meaningless. You have to mature, intellectually grow. If I want to have discussions of the deen with you, you have to first learn the deen. And I was already, already in the Adamiya program this one or two years into my studies. So then he said to me, saying, how about this? Why don't you study the deen and come back to me in a few years when you're closer to your graduation? I'm not going anywhere. I live around the corner. And then we can continue these conversations about Iman. Learn a little first. I don't know what happened. I can argue. That's okay. I'll do it. And what I found was the more I spent time in these gatherings of knowledge and in classrooms with ulama, as the years passed by, what became clear to me that this ego and this arrogance that made me feel that I had the right or even an opinion that mattered, that ego shrunk. Because what knowledge does is that it humbles you. As you're reading through thousands of pages and reading authors who themselves, each of those authors have published thousands of pages, hundreds of books, the thousands of volumes these people have produced. And as you're reading their works and they're raising every silly question, if you read a commentary of Hadith, like they 
they make up objections against a hadith that could possibly exist by someone in some foreign galaxy. And they answer those as well. And it, it became very apparent to me that Muslim scholarship, one clarity that was that was as bright as the sun as I continued studying was that Muslim scholars did not give anyone a free pass. No one got to walk, just walk away. No one did. If you wrote something, they went after you. There is a famous saying among them. They say, Man sunnata This is a saying among the scholars. Man sunnata, whoever writes or publishes, authors a work, he has placed a target on his back. He has placed a target on his back. That everyone now come after him. So they were all written to one another, full throttle, with adab, but academically everything was put under a, a microscope. And when you're surrounded by such great thinkers who existed through history and whose intellect continues to shine, some of them a thousand years later, a millennium later, <coughs> who not only were rough with one another and took each other to task, but they were strong to take on any culture, religion, philosopher, thinker of the world to task as well. They took on the great philosophers of the world. Imam Ghazali is known for this. That, you know, um, regardless of what a person feels about Imam Ghazali his approach, that's secondary. It doesn't matter. We're not talking about that. But he he writes he, he writes on the incoherences of philosophers, takes them on, and therefore he is given a title, Hujjat al-Islam, which means his his existence and his belief in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in itself is a proof of the of the truthfulness of Islam. As that journey happens, you become smaller. And you begin to realize that greater people walk on this earth who had doubts, and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala purified them. And intellectually, they all ended at the same conclusion from different parts of the world, different backgrounds, different languages, different cultures. They all ended on one conclusion, la ilaha illallah Muhammad Rasulullah. And it gave me so much more peace knowing that I didn't have to argue with myself on every doubt that entered into my mind about Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala when I could know that this statement is true in its essence. There's nothing illogical about the existence of God. Nothing at all. I've said it twice today, here's a third time for you. It takes more belief to not believe in God than it takes to believe in God. So there was nothing illogical about it. Now, what gave me so much more comfort was knowing that I was hitching my wagon to great scholars and, and, and thinkers and, and, and writers and giants who came to this very same conclusion, the Sahaba, the Anbiya, that whole tradition of people. And I was not even a grain of sand in this phenomenal Saharan desert. So my job was to stay tucked away under their shade and continue doing the work that they're doing. And Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam then tells us that keep doing your thing until you meet me on the hawla of So that's the goal. <coughs> that you don't give too much time to your ego and entertain the nuts. Rather, rely on what the Quran teaches us. And understand that that's where your salvation actually is. 
Each person comes to their own conclusion, to their own journey. And I think this is what Sheikh Nisar gave me an opportunity to do, where he said to me, stop arguing and spend some time in, uh, in just seeking the knowledge and study. And then it, that itself will just purify you. So, go ahead. Answering according to the question posed. Rasulullah used to answer a person according to the question he had posed. He taught many laws, injunctions, and fundamentals of religion by answering the questions of the Sahaba. He used to urge them to ask questions with regard to various situations and problems which they encountered, as well as the obligations and regulations which they needed to know about. Abu Dawood narrates on the authority of Jabir from Rasulullah who said, the cure for ignorance is questioning. Rasulullah is saying that so the the cure of jahala of ignorance is asking questions. We have many places in the Quran and also in the hadith where the Prophet of Allah encouraged asking questions. In Islam, everything is above board. There is nothing that someone says that we are shy to answer. There is nothing here that's too sophisticated or too complicated to understand. In order for a person to understand something, they need to spend time in that situation that they're stuck in, become familiar with what the issues are within that area. For example, someone stuck with a plumbing issue at home. You have to understand what's going on there. Sometimes you just gotta lift up, open the commode and stand there and look at it. What's connected to what, how does this all work? Ask a question and then you'll be able to figure it out. If you can't solve it yourself, bring someone else and they'll come figure it out for you. In some religions, and unfortunately within certain, within certain Muslim sects, people are discouraged from asking questions. They're told to not ask at all. That if you ask a question, you'll be punished, you'll be doomed. God will hate you, God will be angry at you. This is not the Islamic tradition. In Islam, we are the opposite. The story of the companions is that they were amazing at asking questions, and they left so much knowledge behind for us from their beautiful questions. There is nothing hidden here, there is no secret knowledge here, none of that stuff. When a person is unsure of something, go and learn it. And after learning it, if there is still an area that's outstanding that you don't understand, then ask that question. However, on the other hand, we have some narrations of Rasulullah that discourage asking questions. The Prophet in one riwayah said that nations before were destroyed due to many questions asked. Because of the so many questions they asked, they were destroyed. They were destroyed. So now the ulama, they say that questions fall into two categories. There are those questions that are praiseworthy, and then there are those questions that are blameworthy. A good question, a bad question. There's a statement that's common that there is no such thing as a bad question. Every question is a good question. Well, it depends on 
what's the perspective of that statement? If you're talking about content, then that's true. That all content, if you've gone through the process required to seek knowledge, and if you find yourself, regardless of the content, unsure of a matter, you should get clarity on it. There is no content that you shouldn't know about if you have gone through the process of learning that, and now you're still stuck on the conclusion. But if that, if, if that statement means that there is no process to asking the question, and there are no considerations or no adab involved in asking a question, then that's not true. Because clearly there are bad questions. Clearly there is a wrong way to ask a question. I was speaking to some of the students at the seminary earlier, and I said to them that before you ask a question, it's good to make yourself worthy to ask that question. If you enter into a room where people are talking about a particular issue, for example, they're talking about the financial budget for the city of Carrollton. Let's say you're, you happen to be in that meeting. You don't know anything. You've never looked at numbers before. You've never studied budgets before. You have no idea how finance works. And you start asking questions. You're humiliating yourself. What are you talking about? Make yourself worthy of first asking that question. Learn a little. Commit to the people. Commit to the cause. Be a part of the system. More than anything, at least have knowledge of what you're saying. Someone comes and says, Shift, what's the deed behind X, Y, and Z issue? What good is me telling you the deed going to do? Do you understand how the night will work? Are you just waiting for me to say it's a Bukhari narration? But then you go to someone else and they quote that same issue through another UI of Sahih Muslim. How do you know which one's right, which one should be acted upon, which one should be not acted upon? What principles are you using for your tarjih, for your preference? So when you ask me for a uh, for, for uh, a dalil, I'm not sure if you're even at a point where you're going to understand the dalil that I have to give. Let's say, for example, I gave you a dalil, and you, uh, dalil is a proof. Let's say I gave you a proof. Now, you're judging my proof based off of another set of principles. That doesn't work. You're trying to fix a problem with a tool that was created for a whole different scenario and situation altogether. Now, on the other hand, if there are people of knowledge who have all studied the subject matter and they've given a significant number of years to studying that matter, and they say, what's your dalid? They can have a meaningful conversation. That this dalid is correct, this proof is wrong, this proof is, you know, has been question from this perspective, the ulama of the past did not act upon this, or you can say they did act upon it in, in establishing the Akhtar, but when it came to Qaba, when it came to legal rulings, they then stepped away from this narration and acted upon this narration instead. I was talking with um, some of the Mashayikh today uh, during lunch, and we were talking about one issue particularly, and one of the teachers, he made a good point. He said that on this particular issue that we were speaking of, the ruling in Islam is this, but when you look at the court affairs, when you look at, for example, the documented legal precedents, specifically under the Ottoman period, and also under the Mamluk period, what you'll find is that they gave a very different judgment on this issue. So there is a discrepancy there. Now, for a student of knowledge, that is an area to go and study. Anyway, uh, if you're wondering what all this means, what it means is that make yourself worthy of a conversation before you enter into that conversation. This is how your question is praiseworthy. Similarly, so some of the things that make a question blameworthy. Um, asking about questions that have no need. 
So, Sheikh, what's the ruling of praying salah on the moon? Which direction do we face? What kind of question is that? Or asking about something that is in revelation, but the details of that were not revealed and were kept vague. So there is no need for you to go digging deeper into figuring those things out because the Prophet of Allah, when teaching those things, left them open-ended. And asking a lot of questions about things that don't matter while neglecting things that do matter. So you'll find these are actually, this is a documented scenario, not one, but multiple times through history that a person would come to a scholar. This exact scenario, there are so many times this happened. You'll find it attributed to many ulama that someone came to a scholar and sheikh and asked him, who was right, Ali radiallahu anh or Muawiyah radiallahu anh? And the sheikh would say, buddy, why don't you go focus on fixing your bulu and salah? That would be literally their answer. That instead of you getting into something that you have no business engaging with, clearly, why don't you focus on things that relate to you? Your salah every day, focus on that. You have a business, focus on making that halal. You know, you have a family, take care of them, rather than engaging in these detailed, um, isolated issues. And today's world is all about that. The online discourse of Muslim Twitter, Muslim Facebook, Muslim social media, it's generally debating and arguing things that don't really impact that specific individual on a day-to-day. People talking about divorce and marriage who are not even married themselves. If you're a scholar, then please, come engage in the discussion because we are responsible of engaging in all of those discussions as students of knowledge and as people who are involved in this arena of studying and teaching. But if that's not what you do, if you're a, what do they call it? Is it called an influencer? Follow people. Is influencer the right word? I'm an influencer. What do you do? I'm an influencer. So if you're from that home of people who are just kind of like in between all responsibilities of life, then leave us alone. Why don't you go debate? whether uh, boba is good or not. <laughs> or go do like another BuzzFeed survey or something like that. Stay busy then. Leave our deen alone. The deen is a very serious matter. And as the ulama of the past, they say they would think a hundred times before they talked about it. You know, Imam Malik, he says that I didn't give fatwa until you know, 40, 40 scholars of his time said that he could give fatwa. And then they would say that among in our time, there are people giving fatwa who are more worthy of being imprisoned for what they say because they're speaking of the deen without any knowledge at all. And this is now just open ground, common game that anyone that's bored at home jump onto social media. Some there's some debate or another. I'm sure there are like five or six accounts that Muslim Ummah keeps looking at again and again to see what's the tea, right? What's the new, latest news? And then you start reading the comments and you see all the fatawa on the key. Right? All the fatawa of all the people on all the issues. Allahumma khadra. Wa'ala su'ali lil mara'i wal jidari. That are, or another type of dislike question is just questioning for the sake of fighting, arguing, and debating. Wa qad bayyantu hadihi al-mas'ala. 
باسهاب في رساله في رساله منهج السلف في السؤال عن العلم وفي التعلم وما يقع وما لم يقع. Then he says at the end, Sheikh Abdul Fatah Buddha Rahmullah Ta'ala, I dedicated a book to the subject uh, for those who want to study it and learn from it. He has, again, for students of knowledge, for those of you who are interested in, in, in nerding out, under this particular riwayah, listen to this carefully, under this particular riwayah, Sheikh Abdul Fatah Buddha in his commentary, he quotes a very beautiful discussion from Imam al-Shatabi's al-Muwafaqat. I highly encourage you read this chapter. For those of you that are students of knowledge here, listen carefully. Under this riwayah, he has a detailed discussion from Imam al-Shatabi al-Muwafaqat. Because now when it comes to questions, what he does is that he breaks down the questioner into four main categories. And then from there, each of these have six, seven, six scenarios. And he talks about, he really goes into a detailed approach of understanding what kind of question is legitimate and acceptable and what kind isn't. It's a uh, beautiful discussion that he has. Okay, let's read. We're going to do one more rewind from the same thought. Actually, you know what? I'll summarize the narration for you. This particular narration is from Imam Muslim. He says that I would visit Medina Munawwara, um, and but I wouldn't, but I didn't migrate to Medina. I would visit Medina Munawwara, stay for some days and leave. But I didn't fully migrate to Medina Munawwara. I stayed as a visitor in Medina Munawwara for a year. The question is, if you've lived there for a year, why don't you go ahead and get the driver's license? Why don't you go ahead and change it and make it your welcome? You know, move to the city. So he said the reason why I didn't relocate officially to Medina Munawwara was al-masal, question. Because once a person became a resident of Medina, they would stop asking questions to the Prophet. Out of, out of, for the Prophet out of consideration for the Prophet of Allah, that now they were there, they were residents, they were local, so the way they would ask questions would be different. A person who casually comes to the masjid, when they see an imam, they ask a question. When you go to a madrasa, it's very common that a student walks past a scholar every day, but they don't ask questions all the time, because now they're in that mindset that there's other, there's ihtiram, that we have to be more considerate. This is a part of who we are. This is our identity. This is what differentiates us. So he says that they would um, stop asking questions. And it wasn't because the Prophet of Allah ever told me. This is the just stayed away from asking questions unless the need was pushing, like it had to be asked. So then he says, because I wasn't a resident of Medina, and I would leave every few weeks and then come back for a long period, and then leave and come back for a long period, I can ask all I want to. So I used to ask questions. Uh, 
وكرهت أن يطلع عليه الناس في آسف صلى الله عليه وسلم regarding righteousness and sin into that the Prophet صلى الله عليه وسلم answered this question. So with that, we'll conclude here, inshallah. If Allah wills, in our next class, we'll continue with chapter number 15. جوابه سائل بأكثر مما سأل عنه. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala give us strength in our command. May Allah keep us in gathering to the knowledge of the knowledge of the Lord.